0: Hello there, how is everyone? Welcome back to a new episode of Making Babies with me, Andrea Byrne. As you know by now, if you're a regular listener, I like to try to make the voices on the podcast as varied as possible. But it has been a while since we've had a man's voice on here. This episode, I'm delighted to say that comedian Jeff Norcott joins me. I'll tell you a bit more about his story in a moment for uh, some context. But just briefly, we will be talking about his experience of grief after stillbirth so i just wanted to say that right from the outset in case it's not something that you're in the right headspace to hear right now so to give you a chance to reflect on that for a moment let's get a reminder of uh, some of the other voices on the show which you can listen to at any time and uh, we'll also say a few thank yous too we will create a life that we want whether there's a child in there or not this is about trusting each other, loving each other, and respecting each other. He went and had a full medical with his about his sperm because, because of rugby, he'd been kicked quite a lot down there. He said, I didn't want to propose to you and then turn around and say, oh, by the way, I'm infertile. I'd just been diagnosed with fibroids. I looked around four to five months pregnant. You feel like there's an alien inside you, just sucking the life out of you. So yes, across the series, I've been looking at a range of issues from a range of viewpoints. What part does nutrition play, for example? How can we support our mental health in all of this? We've talked sperm donation, relationship struggles, and hopefully I'm asking the questions that you want answered. Sounds really strange, doesn't it? Let's go and buy some sperm. You just kind of do some filtering and you go, right, well, we both want somebody who's and healthy obviously that comes first and foremost but you you just kind of start narrowing your search down
1: i I kind of remember the sense of your life being on pause and you're not being able to find proper joy and happiness in in things around you and that feeling is so
0: paralyzing talking about um, nutrition or talking about sex or talking about being in a bigger body or talking about You know, any of these things, they all feel like they're a bit taboo. If there were any single foods that were were gonna really increase your chances of fertility, then that's something that the doctors would be prescribing a big thank you to crgw clinics my sponsor with clinics now in cardiff bristol and swansea crgw has been helping to create families in wales and the South West since 2010 priding themselves on putting patients before profits and offering cost-effective treatment a big part of their ethos is caring about the way they care and that is really something i can vouch for i say this every time but i have experience of using them as a clinic myself and it's been a really important part of our journey. One more quick greeting to get in.
1: Hello everybody and my wife.
0: Yes, that is Jemima. She's our precious, wondrous bundle of happiness and my reason really for this podcast. I'm usually a news presenter, but it's a bit of a passion project of mine to help people feel less isolated in all things fertility. Um, After my husband and I, um, Lee, spent pretty much a quarter of our lives trying to start a family. We've been through most things with it um, and I'll share a bit of that along the way as well. Now though, it is on to this episode's guest, comedian Jeff Norcott. Last year Jeff spoke about coping with the grief of stillbirth. It was seven years since he and his wife Emma had lost their daughter Connie at 34 weeks pregnant. Jeff felt so passionate about trying to help other men going through the harrowing loss of a baby and struggling with their mental health that he decided it was really important to open up. So here he talks about grief and the male mind in a really accessible way that is really making connections with other men who may be experiencing similar emotions. He and Emma have since had a son, Sebastian, and Jeff also shares his thoughts here on aspects of the whole fertility journey and how the conversation around it needs to change in our society. I started by asking him how easy it is for a comedian to talk about something so deeply challenging, serious, and emotional.
1: Um, I think, you know, my friend, uh, Catherine Ryan, who's very bold and brave in talking about things generally, you know, I'd spoken, I'd, I'd, I'd confided in her a fair few times over the years. And she says she sort of sensed that it was something that I should share, that I might get something, you know, out of it. And and also more importantly, that, that it's an under discussed uh, area. So um, I knew that, actually. I mean, I knew that for a, two or three years, maybe even longer. I, I, I sat down many times to write articles about it. Articles are tougher than talking about it, I would say, because words can be so unsatisfactory on a page. Um, <clears throat> but eventually, yeah, earlier this year, I sort of started, did a, you know, did, had had a chat with a few sort of uh, podcasts and, and, and stuff like that, and wrote an article for Sands, and um, it, you know, it was uh, constructive but difficult, I would say.
0: Yeah, I heard you talking actually on the the Parenting Hell podcast with uh, Rob uh Beckett and Josh Whitaker and and towards the end you spoke a little bit about uh, the experience didn't you with them um yeah. and I, I found it quite interesting how how you were talking about it from the man's perspective obviously but but also the thought processes you went through in terms of that alternative timeline that you you can't mm. get out of your head sometimes and and you know where are you with that now and and the grieving process and
1: i think that um well i mean it's interesting like in terms of like where am i this week yesterday was a really tricky day, just out of the blue, you know. And I often, I've I've come to learn that there are certain psychological pointers that tell me that that's what I'm upset about. You know, like it can take days. It's so hard to work out what your subconscious is doing. But there are little pointers, and one of them is that I just don't feel that anything I've ever done is good or anything's going well, that I've sort of failed. Things that I thought were successes, I suddenly think were failures. And, And I think that that's part of the process of beating yourself up, you know, like you are culpable that you did something uh, wrong so that was yesterday but today I I, I feel a bit better today in terms of this year um, I think that the process of unlocking from lockdown restrictions it did I mean it's going to sound a bit kind of sort of twee but it did unlock other stuff for people you know certain things we had to all lock down various parts of our psyche and discipline ourselves to think more rigidly about certain fundamentals but then you kind of you emerge back into the world and you go oh right that those some of those things are well they're all still still there really and um it was yeah that it took both me and my wife by surprise that this year was a really a really tough one and it wasn't like you know it wasn't like a milestone sort of uh, anniversary or or anything like that it just it just was tough
0: but how does emma feel about you Talking openly about it and publicly about it, Does she feel that it's a bit of a cathartic process as well to do that?
1: Honestly, she's not. She's not. She finds it hard. She's quite a private person, which is great for me. You know, like you know the way that relationships work well like that. Um, she found it really difficult, and she found it harder than she thought. She the it was it was really tricky, Andrew. I mean, like the the Sands article went a bit more viral than anyone thought. So. The, the fact that your neighbors then sort of know details about your life. It was hard and she was torn between being very sad, but delighted for me, like because she knew that it was something that I needed to do and to put that uh, into the public domain. And, and and you know, it doesn't mean that, that I regret it because I in my darkest moments, there was such a skimpy amount of of sort of discourse in this area. And, and I was so grateful for any of those men that, that had said anything, because that so much of grief and I've learned through quite a series of loss in, in, in the last few years is that you're just looking to find out that feeling, that weird feeling, that thing I can't explain. Am I, am I mad? Is, is it just me? A lot of, you know, a lot of counseling therapy is all about that. And the more dramatic the circumstances and more specific the feeling, the more that you need that. So um, so I knew that there was something I could offer and, um, yeah, I think it's been a positive thing. We've certainly, uh, you know, I, I think that we sort of realised that that her memory is more of a thing now. You know, people mention her name to me and stuff. And um, the correspondence, particularly after that, uh, the, the podcast you mentioned, the, the correspondence was quite quite a lot, really.
0: How important is that you say that they mention her name? Mm. And other people I've spoken to on, on this podcast about um, baby loss have just said to me that that is just resonates so much if if you've um encountered baby loss just to include that name um, of, of Connie yeah. was Connie was the, yeah. the name that you were going to call her and that she was Connie to you at that moment and always will be yeah, and how yeah, important absolutely. is it to to include that in in the dialogue around it
1: it's interesting I'm always a very conflicted person I try to be as as honest as I can about exactly what I'm feeling and it is both really nice and jarring you know because it is it is that thing that's made real by being reflected back to you you know that thing that you always because for a long time because I, you know we we weren't we weren't afraid we discussed we discussed her with friends and family uh, we discussed her with each other we weren't like one of those couples that buried it deep down but yeah that that it's a it's a double-edged sword that you know because if you're having a certain kind of day and then you you, you know you hear that name and or you, you see it written down but I think again, it's one of those things that overall is is a really constructive thing, and you know, I, I got a lot of correspondence, particularly after the the Rob and Josh podcast. I mean, I would say that most of it was from women. I would say, um, and they were, you know, they were, they were saying that you know they they forwarded it to their fella and stuff like that. Not not all. There was there was quite a fair, you know, there was, but predominantly uh, from from women, and it kind of underlines that. It's still a tricky thing to do. You know, I don't know if you're aware there's a, there's a, there's a film that me and my wife watched the other night called Um the long road back with uh, Ben Affleck in, Um, and it's sort of on, on demand services and it's about male grief. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but it's the only film I've ever really seen. That's really gone there. And, and I'd recommend, and I do think that for blokes, like women will often talk with their friends. They're easier talking to counselors and stuff. Blokes, it's almost more abstract. Listen to a thing, read a thing, watch a film. Um, so I would if anyone's listening that that film you know it's 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 a good film and it's an entertaining film at times but there's a lot in there in terms of how men process these things
0: yeah my husband sounds very much like your wife actually in terms of he's a much more private person so I guess we do compliment each other in that respect but he's always struggled to talk about and particularly about um, miscarriage we we had two Hmm. miscarriages and um, it's something that just Is almost unless I bring Hmm. it up it will be unspoken between us pretty much And it's just how do you how you know okay yeah there's these elements of all there's a film there's a book but just it's so important isn't it we know that the men's suicide rate is a lot higher we know they don't deal with things as well Hmm. as women in terms of talking so yeah how do you get get those huge taboos broken down in society?
1: Well I think that it's I think that there is a problem that counseling and therapy is often a bit female led in terms of language you know like the whole philosophy of it is coming sometimes comes at it wrong and I, you know I don't necessarily want to bring class into it but particularly so I think for working class blokes because you know I remember going to see a counselor and she said to me like oh it's okay to be weak I was like I don't want to talk about weakness not yet you know what I mean like let's not even bring that, that word in you know it's, it's you were saying to me oh, what you're talking about is br- brave and again I was like well, it's not brave either is it it's just there's a sort of um um a sort of functional functional view that men have of these things and if you can put it to men um in a functional way uh that can go do a lot of the work I mean I, I when I speak to my pals about counselling or therapy I just talk about it like a pit stop like maintenance do you know what I mean it's you, you can't deny that the brain is the most finely tuned thing that we know of on planet earth. It's just so complex and magical and, and weird. So the idea that you wouldn't need to do things to, to have running repairs on that. So that has often worked in terms of speaking to blokes. The other one as well is that a lot of blokes just simply don't think that it worked. And one of the things that I always tell them is, is about the amount of money that the U S military invest in talking therapies, because a lot of blokes would just go, they've got the best army. If they're doing something, then there must be some merit in it. So it's these these little weird ways that you can get uh, uh into the conversation. And 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 you know like one of my one of my friends said to me when I did eventually go for counseling about my mum he just said to me like you know the more the more you put in the more you get out. You know, uh, it sort of made it sound like a work thing, right? You know, be man up and talk about um and talk about stuff because you you have to challenge that view that for blokes that it's manly to not talk. That's the hardest thing because if the consequence of not talking is you engage in destructive behaviors and all that sort of thing then then um then you know you end up not taking care of your responsibilities and so on
0: and speaking about you know we I mentioned that we had two miscarriages earlier um, and then mm. i heard you talking that you had you experienced miscarriage but mm. but you also experienced um, ba- baby loss and I I, mm. I I i use those terms with difficulty really because i think lots of people don't know what terms to use and i'm quite interested to hear the differences you would make between those terms, and and, and what the right thing is for people to say, because um, when I've spoken about baby loss on here before, I've people have said mm. to me, just call it all of it baby loss. You know, it, it's it's just as valid mm-hmm. at the start as it, as it is at the end. It's it's, yeah. it's a difficult one, isn't it, to know that is and That's part of the problem. People don't talk about it because they don't know how to talk about it. So,
1: yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's always going to be a spectrum for stuff, and there's always going to be a cutting off point. You know, there's a point where you you're a child and then you're a teenager. So I do think that th- the time that you lose a baby there are typically but not for everybody extra things that go with that. W- one thing I, I would sort of re- repeat an echo that I've said before is that the moment you know you're pregnant you start a process in your brain of building a space for a child so that space it gets bigger but it's still you know it comes from the same space so so miscarriage at, at, at any point, uh has degrees of that i would say that you know once you get to late stage pregnancy i th- i would think that a lot of people i mean i'd say i would think i think a lot of people that have experienced stillbirth would distinguish quite heavily between those things you know because like the level of uh investment um from the family goes up but you know like even even seven weeks you know you tell your family unless a family has been through uh a lot of miscarriages and people have spoken about it. The family go mad, don't they? They don't hold back. I mean, I remember me and my wife with um, with our was actually our fourth pregnancy. I think was was with, with Seb, you know, which was a successful pregnancy. We went for a, a reassurance scan, and it was like our third within a month or something. And there was this family there, and there was the the, yo- the youngsters were in their mid twenties, and all the family were with them, and it was for the first scan. And I thought, that's what incredible moment of jeopardy in, in a lot of ways. And, and I looked at some of the women in the family, the older women, I thought you must have like someone here must have, you know, and they must be sitting on that fear. Um, you know, as so we talk about men, you know, there's a lot that women must have to kind of like try to manage and, and not pass down. So I think m- miscarriage it, for me, that deeply affected me. The, the one that we lost in, in autumn, 2013, it was, you know, it's traumatic seeing your partner uh, in emotional and physical pain and not being able to, to, to help, um, the way that women beat themselves up about it is also a very, a very hard thing to, to know how to react to constructively. You know, I think a lot of women do that and you, and it seems irrational. And you, you know, you say to your partner, um, do you think anybody in the world would hold you accountable apart from you? That's, that's one question I have asked and, and it can help, but ultimately if, if that's part of their process, sometimes you just got to sit and be present for it, that they're going to do that. You know, it's really hard.
0: Um, take you back, if it's OK, to, to that time when you did lose Connie. Do, do you think well, there was enough support generally available? Um, mm. I, I, perhaps at the time in the hospital, but afterwards, do you think there was enough support for the emotional side of things and mentally for, for, for people who are struggling once they get home?
1: I think that the process of being told was quite clinical, Um then having to go home for two days, um, and know that the labour was still going to happen. No one spoke to us or visited us in that time or offered. That is that period of time. I mean, you don't. You almost don't have to go into detail. It's every bit as sad and and traumatic as people w- would think. Uh, in terms of the state, the the duty of care after was pretty good. You know, there were social workers up to a point. Um, yeah they, they looked in on us and stuff and that was a a weird experience in in itself you know to have people monitoring you so there was that in terms of um uh friends um i it was it, it was hard because the, the focus and i've you know spoke about this before but the focus is rightly centered on the woman and i think that as a bloke you do have someone to care for you know she will come back from the hospital feeling that she doesn't you know she she'll feel fairly broken you know emotionally and physically but you do you have your wife who, who needs your constant care and attention and you can throw yourself into that um quite willingly in a lot of ways you know because the, the feeling is so strong to try and, and and look after them um but it's very easy and culturally for people to always ask about the wife always and there's there's a few weeks we go of course she went through more you know it's a couple of months Three months. And then the problem is by the time it's right for them to talk to you about it, they're all thinking, oh, they you know, six months ago, it was a year ago. You know, it was for you, it's yesterday. And and then, you know, I think but you that,
0: wanted people to ask at that point. You really to. I don't know. I mean,
1: it. again, I, as a comic, you always have this thing to be as honest as possible. Maybe I didn't. Maybe maybe what I did was I, I send out sent out signals. I mean, one thing you you sort of do, because you have to tell a lot of people, is you um you sort of become like a news reporter in your own life you know you you, you sort of take solace in in reporting to people what they need to know
0: so sticking to the facts not going to the emotions
1: yeah a bit yeah yeah just just relaying information uh, around and then you know and maybe people get a sense off that oh like, well you know he's being a bit guarded and 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 so i don't know i mean it'd be very easy i think i'm not one for sort of victim narratives to say well people um didn't didn't stay i, I don't know maybe maybe i didn't wasn't or wasn't ready for that. I do think it's I do think that sometimes there is a mistake the blokes make you think it's re- if they think it's respectful to never talk about it but that can lead to you just feeling like you're in a surreal vacuum where this life-changing event has happened and, and no one ever talks about it.
0: I think that's probably why Lee doesn't bring it up with me because he just thinks that it will upset why why upset me? Why upset me by bringing it up why talk about it? But actually I suppose for me on the flip side I'm thinking well it would be more respectful if you did bring it up because I, I want to acknowledge it and I want to talk about it. So yeah, unless you tell each other these things, you're not going to talk yeah, and it, like, you know, Yeah. And like, you
1: know, once you've gone a few years down the line of stuff, you know, you there's a culture of the way that you communicate and, and it can also be that, you know, after a while you notice that your wife is recovering a bit and she's recovered her spirits a little bit, but you're going down, but you sort of think, well, where she's been was so much harder, I should probably just take this one on myself, you know? So that's another point is you won't necessarily both. It's almost impossible that you're both going to talk about it. we uh, going to want to talk about it at the same time. Um, and, and there's not many griefs in life that are like that, that you, that you share exactly with somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like the timeline of it is exactly the same, even if you're a brother and sister, you're different ages. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So there are crucial differences in relationships. Whereas this was, you were there, you were both there, you know, the different difference physically for women, but I think that the emotional difference There's still there there is one of those two, um, but it does even out a bit over time, if not completely.
0: And you spoke in what you what you wrote for Sands, you talked about that in a way there's a a different difficulty when you remember Connie as time goes by, because you found it easier to sort of think about the nursery and and the and the, yeah. and the baby and, and it's, it's more difficult now to know how to think about her can you talk mm. a little bit about that
1: well as I see, yeah as I see my son become more incredible and brilliant and fascinating and complex he's the I I yeah you, you know your one-year-olds and two-year-olds are within certain parameters quite similar three-year-olds you know for, you sort of hold on by the time you get to five and a half you like, they're very distinctive personalities and and, and so you are as, as as so many things with with stillbirth um is is that you're projecting into a void so you don't have things other griefs i've been for other griefs uh, they're all difficult but you have memories you have things in, in this you don't really so you have to go through the process of almost constructing a relationship to then grieve it
0: and do you think you do you talk about that with emma do you talk about what, what connie would be like might be like now do you do you kind of have those conversations we
1: have done yeah we have done i mean it you know, there'll be times where there are certain places um, where there'll be certain girls of a certain age. I Again, another one of these triggers that I notice is that, <laughs> is that I just notice fathers with their daughters. I just, you know, you know, like, I mean, this is, a, it sounds like a crass comparison, but if you buy a car, you suddenly notice a lot more of those cars on the road. Well,
0: it's a little bit like when you're desperately trying to get pregnant, all you see is pregnant women, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I can't imagine what... what, what <laughs> That is like you just think god is this always like this you know what i mean like did i you know is someone taunting me in a way and i think that i can remember like there was a guy we went to a restaurant it was about in 2015 and there was this guy with his daughter and he just went to the toilet you know with the baby bag and and he obviously did what he needed to do went into the nappy room did the change come out and he looked so competent and and stuff and i was so jealous of him and, and thought. I just never felt in life that that would be something I would feel jealous about um, because, you know, with us, the decision to have kids was a, a one It took us a while to came, come to. We were um, married for 10 years before we even started trying. We were very happy as a couple, but we, I mean, well, don't get me wrong. Once we got to that place, you know, we very much wanted it, but we had a long memory of, a, of an uncomplicated time as a couple too. Um, so, so it was very strange for me to sit in that restaurant and see that guy, doing that thing and and you know like you know there's a lot of language at the moment about breaking down gender barriers and gender neutrality and all this stuff the truth is for a lot of society we gender stereotypes are still a very formative and ever-present part of our life so when you think about being a father there are certain instincts that you have that remain unfulfilled you know the desire to protect and I mean, you have that with your son, obviously, but it's just—it's just different, isn't it? With with girls, it is—it's is different. And and you know, like the, the 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 way that you decorate a room and the little dresses that you buy and all these little things are are these delicate uh, reminders of what you were expecting. And 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 that was a, a very strange process for me, you know, to sit, you know, like looking at a tiny dress or something like that. It it, it just it it breaks you down uh into your constituent pieces really
0: and when you, you said you had a long time where you um you, you didn't think about having children necessarily but when you went through that period where you, you had pregnancies but then you were the, had miscarriages yeah did you share that with your family or or, or did you um or, or did you decide not to and, and hence did you get all the questions a lot about when you when are you going to start to uh, no we
1: shared we shared the we shared miscarriage we shared miscarriages yeah um i think you know sadly my sister had, had quite a few herself and my mum uh, my mum's already passed by then, but my mum had had several so you know the, the culture of of in our family i think emma's nan was still around at the time and had a fair few too so w- was very well versed in the idea that that is something that happens you know so we were able to talk about it uh pretty easily i mean the pressure was definitely or the expectation well what happened at first was we got married and because you know, we come from quite traditional families. The expectation was up, they're married, they'll be knocking out a couple of kids within no time. I mean, everyone was so confident about it at the wedding day and we were like, we're not, <laughs> we're really not. And no, just no one believed us. This is what happens with with people in the family. They go, all right, okay, see you in a couple of years at the nursery. And then, you... oh, no, we, we plan to carry on having a social life for quite some time. So I think <laughs> there's possibly a case that they'd given up hope a little bit uh, when we started trying Um and also one thing about and again is the everyone has their own specific place in all of this, but when you start trying later in life and you have difficulties, you know the the jeopardy goes up because of the amount of kind of i mean you'd start talk about yourself but like like years sort of fertile years basically yeah, that's that's yeah. that's what it is
0: and and then did you find that um you know we're sort of moving around the timeline here, but once you'd had Sebastian. Did you find that not amongst your family, because they were obviously very aware of everything that, that had happened, but mm. amongst friends and wider society, um, did you then find the question of, oh, when are you having another one? Did, Absolutely. Did that, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it.
1: Yeah. no, straight, straight away. That was the presumption. But you, I mean, you got to think like when you, so we were pregnant from early 2014 up to July, late July, 2014, and then got pregnant again, like August. So just a year later. And then all the anxiety of that, you know, concluding successfully and stuff. Um, Seb was in hospital quite shortly after being born for something, which wasn't on reflection as serious as we felt it was, but given what we've been through. So we were like, we, you know, we're done with, with this, like what she went through and the anxiety and stuff to, 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 to put us through that again, you know, with all the variety of different outcomes, I mean, pregnancy is hard. It's hard to get pregnant. It's hard to stay pregnant, hard to deliver babies. So (coughs) um, yeah, we'd always thought that we would just have one kid anyway. That was always kind of the plan. What
0: what were your answers to to people out of interest? You know, first hmm. of all, in those stages when um, you were, trying to have a child and, and you have mm. questions from, from wider society or people you would meet or, you know, even when you're networking in a business situation or yeah. out on the road, you know, people who didn't know you would ask you those questions. And, and then the question about, well, you have another one. Did you develop stock answers? I, I tried to ask we well, a lot on the podcast because I think people have their own ways of managing and sometimes you know some people come up with real gems about how to handle Mm. those those situations
1: well i'm quite frank with people i suppose again that comes from being a stand-up so you give people very direct answers you don't answer in platitudes you say we're just no no we're not and and like if there's a way of answering because if you fluff and go yeah no you know we're gonna try you give them space to be nosy um but if you kind of go or would you know we're just really enjoying life as it is um so yeah that's not for us right now. Um once shut we it start
0: just shut it down. Really. Yeah yeah
1: you you can do. I mean I understand it's a bit different from women is it if you if you were that blunt with a group of girls they'd be like <laughs> oh hello. She might <laughs> think... be invited to book club again.
0: <laughs> do you think we'll get to a place where you can where I'm probably more from a woman but they could just maybe just say no but we are trying. Do you think or we ha- yeah, no but we're having some help or it, when yeah, will that I mean, become it, a part of you a you normal I mean, conversation? In, in, you know, over some business drinks or over, a, I don't
1: know. Well, one of the things that, in a way, governs my comedy is the idea that certain things are as they are for a reason. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a conservative person with a small C. I don't always think that everything can be root subject to root and branch change, and we can change the language and everything. The reason that some discussions are hard is because they're hard, right? Like, so you can change the language about it you know you could change the words or you could change the leading question the truth is when a couple want to have a kid and they're trying and it's not happening that's hard you know and so either people don't ask at all or they ask but the question and the response are 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 still the same so so i don't know i I certainly think once someone's give you a strong signal that they've given their answer it does i do find it astonishing people that will then I'll go, oh, you've got to have a kid. You know, you've got to... That is, that is incredible to me. But just because I'm big on people minding their own business, you know.
0: Yeah, I used to find it strange that I, there's the one question which is, um, are you going to have children or or do, you, yeah, do yeah. you want children or do you have children? But then there's the other question is, when are you going to have children? And I just think... <laughs> how can anybody be when, yeah so when you're gonna I, get
1: on with it hey when you get you know like,
0: also, I, used to, I used to end up saying well I didn't know you could order them because I just thought or well, when it's just a ridiculous yeah question, yeah I it?
1: mean you could like if you wanted to you could really make that person feel so bad that they never ask the question again you could just say no there are physical problems thanks for asking I mean they would they would be so horrified right and in many ways they probably deserve that, right? They do if they've pushed it, but you, you it's difficult. It's the same with stillbirth in a way. It's like you have this kind of reaction where you still, you feel that people are being a bit blunt or crass, but you don't want them to feel bad. So you kind of just, you kind of just wave it through really.
0: And is that a very British thing?
1: Maybe, maybe. I think, yeah. I mean, there's this, that, that understatement thing where, yeah, I mean, like if you if we were really honest, you go, what kind of question is that? Like, if someone says, "Well, what, what, you know, why don't you get on with it?" You go, "Why don't you just mind your own business?" Would be like a very fair response. Uh, but but you know, there's a social jeopardy in that, and I, I think when we got to the point of, I mean, look, I, fortunately with us, when we did start trying, we were able to conceive in reasonable time. So when it came to the the period between connie and, and getting pregnant said we we, we were saying to people when you know we're not starting we're not and, and and then we said fortuitously the moment we started trying we did get pregnant again so we didn't have to endure a build-up of that question i wonder if people would have been uh tactful enough to realize that it was a slightly different thing from us but but yeah i mean i would have struggled a lot if we weren't getting pregnant and people were pestering us uh, yeah i might have flipped
0: how do you think it affects your um, your comedy or how do you think it has affected your comedy and your, and, and, and your you know, emotions, releasing emotion? Is that helpful as a backdrop for comedy in general?
1: Um, I think that there's a, a, particularly with comedy, like when you're busy and things are going well, you can kind of fill up a little hole, very superficial hole that goes, well, it's all right. I did. I was good at that. Go on to the next thing. I was good at that. And you can keep going on like that. But, there comes a point where you realize that you're just throwing things into the void and, and it's your job and you have to be good at it and stuff. But it's it's like any drug really that there are, you know, the lows get lower and the, and the highs get lower as well. So, so you got to put it um, in its place in terms of emotionally, whether or not that provided some sort of function for me. I don't know. That's I don't know if comedy's <coughs> ever been that I, I get a lot of satisfaction from having job done my job. Well, um and you know egotistically it can be good I'd love to say that you know what I kind of hoped after all this this grief that I went through was like that you'd never get nervous again that you'd sort of think well there are bigger things in life and you know it's just a comedy gig and stuff but what you're also left with so you think that on one level but you also think you also are bruised by it as well so yeah i do have a legacy of anxiety uh, you know looking back i realized it was always there on some level but i can get very low and very exhausted you know when when i have to kind of carry on working while these things are going on in my brain so when you're you feel you feel compromised when you go out on stage it's not a good thing you know you go out you feel tired you feel dizzy there are a few hundred people there and you know you've got to be up there an hour and um, that that can be pretty tough it's really hard because you sort of think am i a wiser person i mean i'm certainly more now you know more intuitive around that level i have a a love of life i do appreciate that you know that this thing is is delicate it's really delicate you know life and and stuff and it's like you say it's hard because you know it probably you know it started with my mum going you know once it gets fractured you until your first parent goes or your first mm-hmm. big grief and i probably would exclude grandparents from this for most people although some people would have been closer you just don't really think you're going to die um or <laughs> that stuff goes wrong and then the moment that happens you sort of feel the tectonic plates shift beneath you you know and, and, and that's another thing that I've spoken a lot about in terms of male mental health is the anxiety that comes from grief. A lot of people think, oh, I'll just be sad sometimes, but it can be sadness, anger and the anxiety. I think culturally for women, if women, have, you know, if, if women have a funny turn, right, they can sort of sit down, fan themselves. Women will, you know, kind of gather around. Them, Are you all right, babe? You know, that's OK. But if a bloke starts doing that, we're less first in what's going on here. You know, your you're more likely
0: like, to take the Mick, aren't you? I think. Yeah, you go. Well, a bit, it's a yeah. bit of bouncer, isn't there? And there's a bit of.
1: Yeah, you go. Well, well, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with him? You know, like it's someone getting a fan? Um, so, <laughs> and it's difficult because I don't ever want to lose male banner for what it is. It's not an attack on that, but but you 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 just don't credit that that will be a part of it um this this suddenly you're in a public place and you, you feel it rising up in you You feel like you want you want to run because essentially that certainty that you had uh has gone and you're you're sort of rebuilding your personality again i mean you know a great film in terms of the most the best representation of this is that film what was it in that pixar film inside out where the girl gets to about nine and then she has to move and stuff and you see all her personality islands inside her head and you know she goes through something traumatic and then they sort of rebuild and they're different and they're more complicated and I think that that is is what you know sort of grief has been for me but the bit where they're rebuilding it it can feel like you've lost a sense of everything of, of who you are.
0: Would you say you were depressed? Technically, were you, were yeah. you treated for depression, or was it more anxiety, or was it? More well,
1: anxiety? it manifested as anxiety. I think the depression, like again, with a lot of blokes and people generally, is that I could cope with that. Yeah, I feel sad. I'm just, I'm just detached. It's quite a safe place to be, but sometimes, in a weird way, once that shifts and you see in the world more vividly and sharply, it can be a bit overwhelming, right? You're like it's all in my face now there's that period where i felt like i was you know i was orbiting my own life for a while so i've had several spells of where the anxiety has become unmanageable now that's usually been to do also with exhaustion illness overwork it's usually been when they've all combined so i have had several spells on uh, anti-anxiety medication which again like I, you know i didn't ever want to do I, I don't like that and and as much as people might say try and create a positive touchy feeling narrative of like you know it's brave it's like it's just one of those things I would rather that that hadn't happened I'd rather I I didn't need it but I have responsibilities to my family so I have to be functional on a certain level and I can't completely kind of concertina um and yeah I mean I I had plenty of counselling um but one thing about counselling I've learned is that is you you got to know when to change counselors because sometimes you're having the same conversation, and there is a there is a point with counselors where you're just moaning, you know, or it's not constructive. So, but yeah, I think talking therapies are something I believe in. It's almost like it's almost like a form of alchemy where just the idea that you can go through a conversation and you just happen upon a thing you go to say it, you choke up, and that's the best bit. And then a lot of people fight that bit. You know, they go. I'm leaving. I can't deal with this. But, but, that's, but that's it. The that's the
0: revealing bit, isn't it? That's the revealing bit to yourself as well. Something. Yeah. That you didn't, well, this is what I would choke you up. Suddenly, chokes you up.
1: And to just say a word to another human, and it can make you feel better. It's, it's like a form of magic to me. Um, and then you can have some sessions where you don't get any of that, and you go, oh, "That was a bit rubbish." You know, you uh, know, I didn't cry once. You know, I want a refund
0: how do you know then when to when it's not working and when is that is that it that you don't you don't cry because lots of people will be thinking will it work for me lots of men will be listening to this and they'll yeah. be thinking oh no i you know that's just not for me it's just not going to work for me or they might do it once because their wife says they should <laughs> and then they won't do it again
1: yeah i mean so, there will be a lot of that i mean you don't have to to cry obviously but there, there these phrases that have been around a while you know a problem shared is a problem half there is something about saying a thing to another human or something you're scared about or feel guilty about or bad bad about unburdening yourself off your shoulders you know there's all these all this language has been around for a while for a reason and i think that you know when we lived in a more simple time you would have lived in a community with an elder you know you would have had somebody we would have always had someone that existed within that role right whether it was a priest whoever um so in a kind of irreligious world largely um, that last thing where you could speak to a vicar or a reverend or a priest for a lot of people in this country is gone. So it's just logical that something has to come back into that space because a lot of people, and I, actually I get this, I hear this a lot from women, they'll say, well, I don't need to go to therapy because I, I talk a lot to my friends. I'm like, yeah, but with your friends, you're still managing a version of yourself, aren't you? Like there's a way that you hope that they think of you or you want to preserve that they think of you. But you're not they're never
0: gonna... gonna have that impartiality are they that, that somebody will offer you in as a therapist or a counselor or...
1: No no and they might want to to be seem overly supportive that often is a thing with female friends you know like just yeah <laughs> you've got to be all in and yeah sod that guy and you know you should do what makes you happy you know some of this unconstructive um, sort of individualist narrative but I, I think that I think that there is something about saying something that you're very uneasy about um, to a stranger. Uh, that, that is really is really constructive because you know you sometimes you have a dream you have like a really disturbing dream and you just need you wake up and it ruins your whole day and you think am I am I messed up in the head you know and, and then you you talk and then you find you might find out what that dream was really about or that it's quite common um, and and therein lies the benefit.
0: And what do you and Emma and and Sebastian do now to remember Connie? Do you have particular? anniversaries or places or, or things yeah, that we do to remember her.
1: There's a, there's a place that we go. That's a sort of more of a memorial place. And then obviously there's a places where, where her ashes are. And, and she, you know, she's very much in the language of my son, you know, he, he knows who she is. And I was always unsure about that. It's very early in life to, to know, but equally for our sanity, the idea that we could have spent the last five and a half years, not mentioning her that, you know there's never a good time to find out what, what your parents went through and um so that i think is is constructive and yeah we will go at, uh certain uh anniversaries and and then also you know my wife sometimes i'll just see i can tell how she's feeling and i'll just say just you know get in the car go you know go see her quite a lot uh, and and i think that we're quite good at noticing that uh, in each other. Um, if every once in a while, you go and sit there, and, and you you feel something, you know, something positive, or you you, you sort of are aware of um, how that experience shaped you for the better, or made you a better parent, or more appreciative of things. But um, it's never a, a, an easy trip.
0: And how do you think it affects you as as a as a parent um, to Sebastian? Now, um, do you think it makes what sort of difference does it make? to you as a parent to
1: him? I think the main, I think when, when he was very small, we were probably a bit risk averse with him and he's maybe got a legacy of that in terms of how he approaches things. Um, we tried to work on that and become conscious about it. I think the main things are internal. Uh, you know, it, it definitely made me savor being a parent more. Um, but also sometimes it can be hard to let yourself enjoy it. Like the wondrous yes. things you, cause you feel bad, you feel guilty because you know, it's, it's a different timeline. From, yeah. from, from what happened. And that can be hard to square. And sometimes there are p- points where in his development, he becomes so much more incredible. You know, every time you think that it couldn't be more magical, it does. And then you enjoy that. And then you have to go through a process of squaring away, maybe some of that guilt. And then, you know, you, you start again. He, he's a very magical little man. Like people that meet him and stuff, there's something very special about him. Um, and, and that, you know, that that got us through a lot uh, as well. And Survivor's Guild, one thing I've learned, and particularly through, you know, lo- losing my best friend as well, is that um, they are. it's a really strange thing. It's a very powerful emotion. You never, no one, even in the, the kind of like more uh, braver discourse around grief, that isn't discussed much. You know, why do, Why am I still around in their lot? I mean, if you look at like soldiers, they, they get it a lot. And I remember I was watching the film Dunkirk, and, and, you know, obviously I'd been sad about my friend going, you know, I'd have, but this film, you know, Dunkirk is very much about who gets off the beach, right? Who gets to live and who, who doesn't. And it absolutely crushed me. And, you know, I had some counseling after that, and that turned out to be the thing I was carrying most in relation to him. So yeah, again, grief, is it just, its just so, I mean, in a way I, I, I respect it because as human emotions go, it is so non-linear, you know, mm. so complicated, magical you know dark it's it's an absolute beast but it's it's not it's not like other emotions you know it is there's a lot there's a lot wrapped up in it but it does make me think that humans are fundamentally good because the way that we feel about losing people that we love is just so so deep and and, and constant
0: oh god goodness this is like a therapy session in itself <laughs> <laughs> um I, you've touched a little bit on it there, actually. But what are your kind of mantras in life then, you know, to help you through all these things? And, and have they changed since your experience with with losing Connie, do you think? Or have um, you got any particular mantras or is it is it more general than that?
1: Well, I've certainly become a bit more, over the last couple of years, a bit more empathetic, I suppose. After, after the anniversaries of Connie and my mum, uh, it was Connie's five-year anniversary in 2019 and my mum's 10th one something shifted in me a little bit um and you know I talk about it a fair bit in the book but I came out the other side of that sort of personally and to a smaller extent politically feeling a bit different maybe a little bit less angry perhaps a little Do you think bit your less...
0: expectations alter
1: um I just was I realized that I'd been quite angry so politically you know when in the Brexit years and all that sort of stuff and the left-right arguments i had been really at the coal face of yeah you know, you know of those culture war stuff. And and I still love a debate. I still have my views and stuff, but I was, I wasn't angry with anybody anymore. I found, Um, and and I wanted to just have discussions and, you know, understand other points of view more. And then that's something that I've definitely carried forward for the, for the next couple of years. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to be angry with, with people. It does, you know, I realize I, I, you know, I, I would sometimes get up in the morning angry and instead of going, Right, I need, to, especially with, with losing my dad, actually, because he was very political. And I would think instead of having to think about that, I'd go on Twitter and post something about Brexit, just some, you know, get rights stuck in there. And and I realized then that that was both the way that I used to debate with my dad, but also easier. Anger is a lot easier than feeling sad.
0: I mean, you've lost a lot of important people in your, in your life, it sounds oh, like. I'm a liability,
1: yeah. I man. If anyone's <laughs> listening, it, it is, I mean, the roll call is, yeah, mum, dad. Uh, stepdad, best friend, and obviously the stillbirth. So that a lot that all happened between sort of 2009 and 2016. So um,
0: you said you've you've got to a place where you're less angry. What mm. about a place where you've got hope? What, where's the hope come from in all of this? And where do you get to that stage where you're like, no, life can be good, well, despite I mean, all of this?
1: In a way, that's you, you've hit on my biggest problem. There is to look to tomorrow with to even see it for what it might be. That's my hardest thing is to to think of what he'll be like at fifteen. Cause I guess there's a part of me that still worries that he won't make it there, You know, and that's a brutal truth and legacy. Really? Yeah. I just I just don't allow myself to to enjoy that idea. Um and you know I often because of my job and stuff like that, if I think about the future I'll often think about well will I still be able to provide and all those day in, day out things. I think that is perhaps something I could I could work on is to savour to you know he's one thing reconciling with the past but to savour the future you know that's that's hard that's hard you know to to think ahead and think it's going to be good
0: so you're not quite there yet but hopefully that is somewhere you'll you'll get to um as time goes on and in the meantime i suppose a good place to end this is on advice um if you could give advice to any man that's listening that's going through fertility problems but or going through loss um, in any way, but particularly related to, to baby loss or, or, or miscarriage. Um, what would you say to them if they just don't know how to even start communicating about it?
1: Well, I think the first thing is in the immediate aftermath of a trauma is to be kind to yourself, you know, like to, to make life as easy for yourself as possible. And it's very easy. And I've done this too, is you go, I'll just go back to work, you know, carry on. And you think that that is the brave thing, but you are exhausted at that point now it's very hard to give definitive advice, but even just acknowledging I must be exhausted. Now, if you've been up and down hospitals or anything like that, it's inevitable, right? That a part of you is, is exhausted. So just work within that uh, consciousness and, and to, to, to just go, you know, like, do you want to feel better is a good question. Do you want to feel happier yet? Yeah. Because sometimes the answer is no, I don't, you know, and that, so you've, and that can be
0: quite hard, hard yeah, for people yeah, well, around you, can't I'm it? Under, it's really you know, hard for people around you to just accept that too. But it's it's a brave thing to say, but really hard for everybody.
1: Well, you like look at all the dumb dumb things that people do, right? Destructive behaviours. Like, why do people drink when it makes them, if it makes them unhappy? You go, maybe they want to be unhappy. Like, if they know for a fact that drinking makes them unhappy, maybe that is the cycle of life that they're comfortable with, and there are destructive behaviours that I engaged in, where I kind of like. I know that even when I was sort of like going out and thinking, oh, I don't want to drink, you know, to a point where I don't remember and then have the guilt and the fear and all these things for days. And I, I would think all that stuff on the way out and then I would do it again. And then I had to conclude eventually, maybe subconsciously, that was my plan was to drink to oblivion. You know, it must have been right. There's no logical answer. I'm not you know, somebody that drinks like regularly, I don't drink during the week or at home or anything like that. But that was clearly in some part of my head, my plan. So just be honest with yourself. Yeah. Do I want to feel happier? Yeah. Uh, and, and then, and then if the answer is no, then you have to deal with that answer. Like why, why don't I want to feel happier? And the truth is probably people will often find that they feel that they don't deserve to be or that they did something wrong and they're sort of put in um, putting themselves through uh, a hard time as an act of probably tribute to whoever they've lost. And, and that is a really, again, grief. It's so complicated, but if if that is what you feel that you need to do, just do the work enough to at least be self-aware at least if you acknowledge i'm being hard on myself or i'm beating myself up you might just ease off a little bit even if it doesn't stop it completely if you if you kind of can just work out that you're punishing yourself then that that's sort of the start of a new way of thinking about it
0: i think you have tapped into a lot of stuff that will be in lots of men's psyches who are listening and i know my husband will probably be included in those so thank you very much (laughs) for that because you just you just have got this Um, talent of of making people see it from a different perspective so thank you for that and it's really really helpful and it's not something we hear about enough so um, hopefully hopefully people listening to this would have um, drawn something from it so
1: no no not at all and um, yeah I would just uh, recommend people to go to the sort of baby loss charities stillbirth and sands and And all those people that, you know, they they don't get a massive amount of coverage, partly because this subject is tricky. So it's almost like a double difficulty for them.
0: Hopefully between all of us, we'll get there in the end and and it will help people feel less isolated.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you ever so much to Jeff. And if you found that useful, please share with your male friends, particularly who might struggle with aspects of mental health, but especially dealing with grief and how to manage it perhaps. And my thanks to him for bearing with me for the publication of this episode as falling ill with COVID kind of delayed all my planned publishing dates. Please remember if you have a question about anything you might be facing regarding fertility, you can contact me on social media at Making Babies Pod or on at Andrea Byrne TV. I'm also on LinkedIn. There will be two episodes coming up with clinicians from CRGW who are sponsoring this series, along with the Fertility Network UK. And we'll try to answer lots of questions there as well. Next time on the series, it is newsreading couple Hannah and Lewis Vaughan-Jones talking about dealing with long-term infertility and all the anguish which that brings again it's really really inspiring chat and last thank you before i say goodbye and that is to lens monkey who kindly supplied the graphics for this series for now though thank you very much for listening as ever a warm goodbye and i'll see you soon